The Gospel of John is slightly different than the other, other three Gospels. It's almost like the thumb on the hand. He has a different perspective. He has different things that are important for him to say. And in the Gospel of John, almost half, the second half of John, goes into describing what took place and what was said, what Jesus had to say uh, in the last week of his life. We get a lot of the last week of Jesus' life. It's an amazing recounting. It's a wonderful uh, depth of, of what is happening in this last week in Jesus' life. I'm going to read out of John chapter 16, so we're squarely in the middle of this last week. And he says this, I still have many things to say to you. More, always more, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's an amazing bit of conversation to be having between Jesus and the disciples. Have you ever had something so difficult to share with someone, so complicated that you knew that you would talk yourself blue in the face and still not be able to communicate it. Maybe your favorite recipe. What makes these cookies so spectacular and, and to really unpack all of that. How about directions to your house? To give people directions to your house. Uh, different things are just so difficult and you knew that no matter how much you talked, no matter how much you might say, nothing would alter the fact that you're not able to explain it fully. Some things just don't explain very easily. Some things are too tough. They're too complicated. And Jesus came to a point where he said bluntly to his disciples that he needed to tell his disciples more, but they couldn't bear it. It was just more than they could handle. He said a great many things about his relationship with God and about the Spirit, and there was more, but he admitted that they could not bear it now. What do you suppose he wanted to tell them? What went unsaid? Some commentators point out that since this was written so many years past the actual conversation, that it is so separated from the conversation itself that perhaps Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for his death. That is the look backward. That is the look to understand what he's saying through the lens of, of hindsight. Kierkegaard said this, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And that's a complicator in life because it's in hindsight that we can understand what has happened we can begin to understand how things are going on and the dilemma of the world of possibilities that we can't even predict. I don't know about you, but did you spend any childhood time uh, daydreaming about what might happen to you in the future? 
What would you do? Would you get married? Would you live in this town? Would you go abroad? Would you have a career doing this or that? And, and so, so much of that is really well spent, but it's also idle time because almost none of that ever happens. Almost none of it plays out just like that. You try to imagine what your life would eventually become, and now that you're older, has much of that happened? Not for me, it hasn't. I spent the first day of my freshman year in college with one major, I skipped every class and went and changed my major on the very first day. I mean, that's how, that's how my life is sort of un, un, unpacked. At least some of our childhood imaginations have come true, or at least they have come true only in a vague kind of way, perhaps. But what would you do if you suddenly had a magical glimpse of how your life would turn out? Anybody out there would really like to know what's going to happen in the next five years or 10 years of your life? Would you want to know the truth in all blunt honesty? I don't know. I'm not sure I would really venture that far and say I would like that. When asked to speak to a group of children, Gordon Cosby, the pastor of Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., claimed there were two great truths about adulthood. So here he is, he's got the assignment. You have an assignment to talk to children and um, we want it to be real. Oh boy. So he told them that it appears to him that life gets better and better as long as we live. It gets better. And what he said was, there's uh, life at 25 is better than it was at life at 20. Yeah, that's probably true. I think I could buy that. And life at 35 is better than life at 30. And so on and so on. And maturity kicks in and you begin to understand there's a growing sense of wisdom and accomplishment. But secondly, he said, life gets harder and harder. Meaning that life at 30 is more difficult, it's more complicated than life at 20. And life at 40 is more complicated than life at 30. Ever looked over your shoulder and wished that you could Go back to some of those simpler times in life when you were younger, maybe. That's the part that keeps us from wanting too many details about life, about the future, because we don't know that we can handle it. Just a sampling of sorrows from a crowd like this would make us realize that one of God's great gifts to us is that we're blissfully ignorant of what might happen next. From a saying recorded on the graffiti on a wall came this, this observation. Time is nature's way of making sure that everything doesn't happen at once. I kind of like that. Perhaps our ignorance of the future is God's way of not telling us more than we can bear in the moment, of holding back just a piece, of not unloading the whole load on us at once. We know from history that within just a few years of Jesus saying this, uh, after the time of Christ, the political forces of Rome focused their fury on the city of Jerusalem, 
just a couple of decades later, the city of Jerusalem was like Ukraine. It was completely decimated. It was completely knocked over. In fact, today you can go to Jerusalem and you can see the biggest boulders that you can ever imagine that were up on the Temple Mount are now down below it. They're too big to even pick up. The people of God, both the Jews and the early Christians, faced great bloodshed and the painful experiences of loss and grief. Now, do the words of Jesus and his caution about preparing them, would it have been helpful? Or was it the wiser approach? What Jesus offers them is not clairvoyance, a not, not a look over the horizon into the future. He's more concerned about how we live today in the present moment. What would happen to us? What does happen to us? And his observation was that we always have the spirit presence of God with us to accompany us. This is part of what he's not quite ready to share with them. But within just days or weeks, this begins to happen. That the spirit of God, we, we observed that last week in Pentecost, the spirit of God comes into reality. I've always loved the, uh, the imagination that it would take for us to realize what that upper room was like and to imagine that the wind begins to mysteriously cycle in here, blowing, 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 and then the Spirit of God coming in the form of descending tongues. This experience that is transpersonal, it is beyond our ability really to even understand this experience of the Spirit descending into a place. They spoke in tongues. It's finally dawned on me that the speaking of tongues may have been the wind blowing down their windpipes and creating sound. This amazing experience and this is what Jesus wants to talk about, that the Spirit would be with them in every event that ever takes place to provide comfort and strength for the moment to endure. It's an extension of this promise from Jesus that he gives, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Wow! The end of the age hasn't come yet. And we have this promise from Jesus that he will be with us and he comes in the form of the Spirit. This passage comes to us this morning because it's the only day in the year, the only Sunday of the year that we ponder the church's teachings on Father, Son, Spirit, called the Trinity. A word that, by the way, is not even in the Bible. How ironic. These three understandings of God coming together and forming a sense of oneness is not spoken of in the Bible in such a clear, overt kind of way. And it's a very complicated Sunday. Most of my minister buddies are backing away from this topic. It's just awfully hard to explain. It's one of those things that you can't really talk your way to clarity. I got tickled reading uh, Dorothy Sayers. I don't know if you've ever read her. She's a mystery writer. 
and a playwright. She does playwright-type work as well. And she was a Roman Catholic theologian. She was a Christian, a Catholic Christian who wrote and often included some of these themes in her, in her writing. And so she wrote a play, The Zeal of Thy House. And she concludes the play with this speech from St. Michael the Archangel, who gives this, this commentary. Children of men, lift up your hearts. Laud and magnify God, the everlasting wisdom, the holy, undivided, and adorable Trinity. Praise him that he has made man in his own image, a maker and a craftsman like himself, a little mirror of his triune majesty. For every work of creation is threefold, she says, an earthly trinity to match the heavenly. You begin to see that now we have a role to play in making the idea of the Trinity come together. She says, first there is creative idea. Passionless, timeless, beholding the whole work complete at once. End in the beginning. And this is the image of the Father. Second, there is the creative energy begotten of that idea, working in time from the beginning to the end, with sweat and passion, being incarnate in the bonds of matter. And this is the image of the Word. Third, there is the creative power. The meaning of the work and its response in the lively soul. And this is the image of the indwelling spirit. Not bad for a mystery writer, a laywoman in the Catholic Church able to put together three ideas that make a lot of sense. God is not Trinity because of some doctrinal meeting where they declared it to be, or some creedal claim hammered out in the councils of church leaders who come together. God is not Trinity because they say so. God is Trinity because God behaves in Trinitarian ways. Does that make sense? God moves in particular fashion in these Trinitarian manners. It's our experience of God that always ends up acting in Trinitarian ways. So Trinity is about God. But even that is unfathomable. I mentioned the word mystery early. What is more important is that Trinity is what the church is about. There's a mystery in that relationship. Trinity is a way of describing how churches fulfill their mission. I want to engage us in this because this is what the sermon is all about. We do our very best to live in the spirit of God as creative idea. God as creative enfleshment and God as creative energy. Those three categories, and you look at what's going on in the church, here's how, here's how it works. Everything begins with an idea. Ideas are good, aren't they? But often they're only blueprints, like a building project of some kind. Somebody comes up with a good idea about something. And it's only ink on a page until we gather together and begin to think about it. And by impulse, the idea turns into human passion of a group of people. That's us. 
someone comes up with the idea, we come up with some commitment to it, some passion about it. The idea represents the real life sweat and zeal, the laughter and the tears of people. When we come together around a good idea, sometimes it takes a bad idea to come up with a good idea. If you've given a bad idea to a group and they squashed it, did a good idea come along? And that's the purpose of bad ideas. Okay, that's my leadership lecture for the day. The idea represents the real life sweat and zeal. In other words, we bring ourselves to this process. And finally, the stories and the fabric are pieced together and stitched together like the tie that binds by the spirit of love that holds them together. We begin to make the idea come alive in us. Ideas taking on flesh and flesh being energized by love, that is the work of the Trinitarian God. Almost everything works this way in the church. Whether it's dismissing church one Sunday a year in order to worship God with our hands out in the community. Who, who came up with that idea? Where did that come from? What? We're not going to meet here? We're not going to worship in this place? We're going to shut down this building and scatter in the community. Us and our sisters and brothers in a, several other churches. One day a year, that's an idea. Or whether it's supporting the South Elementary School, as we do in various ways. Or supporting mission partners where our members give of themselves and the church as a whole contributes toward their success. Mission trips with our youth. We go into areas where extreme poverty is being lived out. We go to where crisis has happened. We take our kids and our adult leaders and plow bravely into those settings. And us as a church who sit home, who don't even go, we participate because we help support it. We endorse it. We give our money to it. There's great poverty all over our country, surprisingly. Or maybe we send money to the Ukraine where we have personal relationships with the Christian church there. On the inside, this church is as diverse as any church maybe ever. We have left to right, we have right to left, and we have a big middle. We are as diverse as we can be. We have one of everything is my joke about that. But we experience unity around our commitment to missions. This is what you said in the three congregational conversations. It is the spirit of missions that animates you and creates unity in spite of our differences. This is where we gather. We gather together around these opportunities for ministry. A divine idea burns in the hearts and minds of ordinary human beings of, who envision something that needs doing. I love what Wendell Berry, the poet and the essayist said, find something that needs doing and do it. I've met Wendell Berry. He is as practical a, an artist as anyone I've ever met. Find something that needs doing and do it. 
Come up with a great idea. Bring your passion around it. Make it happen. Let the spirit of love make it happen. Idea and flesh become real because of the divine energy that makes all of it come into being out of nothingness. It doesn't matter to me much how you want to label it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, Idea, Enfleshment, Energy. Everything we do in the kingdom work of the church, everything done in the community of faith is all about Trinity. We conceive of faith and act in Trinitarian ways. The triune God is the one God, the same God, who loves us deeply and wants us to be included in the partnership of grace and reconciliation. Who could argue with that kind of logic? It may be more than what we can know, but are we drawn to some ideas of service? Does it ignite passion in us? Can we bring our whole beings to bear? And can the Spirit of God work in us as we do so? Amen.